Good evening. Good to see everyone here tonight. We are so thankful for the presence of each person. It looks like a good crowd. In fact, we were having a discussion before we started tonight, and I was saying that you can tell the strength of a congregation by its AM to PM return ratio. I know of a congregation, they had about 1,200 members, but the return rate in the evening was like 500. And so that said something about that congregation. Oftentimes, really large congregations will not have a good return rate. And I found out this morning we had 103, and tonight we have 113. And so that is an all-time record for us here. Of course, this is only our third Sunday here, but it is still a record for us. Uh, I think we're going to continue to grow while we are here. We have so many good things that are happening in this location. And uh, we're kind of in a honeymoon period right now because uh, we're new, we're excited, we've got a new building, and people love to be together. But as time goes on, sometimes things change and people begin to bicker and old habits set in. And we don't want to let that take place. We all want to be dealing, like in a marriage, you have a honeymoon, everything is exciting. And then when day-to-day -day life comes to uh, fruition, if you're married and you're going to have a good marriage, you've got to work at it. And we want to continue to work at it that this congregation will be a good and a thriving church here. I saw the big crowd that was here tonight and I said, I guess they don't know that I'm preaching tonight. And then I spoke to someone, some visitors, and they said, yeah, we're here to see Josh. And I said, see, that's what uh, I, I knew was going to happen. But uh, we're going to have questions and answers tonight. But before we do, I want to make an announcement. It's something that's a little bit unusual. But um, we have a family in the congregation. They don't know I'm going to announce this. They might even be sore at me for announcing it. Uh, but Andy and Penny Paul are in a situation where they need our prayers. They have been uh, renting a house. It's from a denomination. This denomination has decided that they only want members of their denomination in the house. And in two weeks, they've got to move out. And they are in a predicament now. Uh, we believe that there is power in prayer. And it might be that there's someone that has a rental house or has something that is available to help them. And we want to make you aware of it. We believe that if all of the people here fervently will pray on their behalf, that something good can take place. And um, the elders want to make that known to the church here. And I hope I haven't embarrassed them, but we love them. We want them to find something and uh, to be taken care of, and so we want to make you aware of that information. Tonight, we're going to have questions and answers. This is something that uh, I used to do, and I still had a lot of questions. I look back, it was April the last time that I did Q&A, and so um, tonight, I'm going to try to cover about 10 questions, and I'll watch the time, but I'm shooting for about 10. A lot of these questions actually were given to me by some of the young people, by some of the kids. And uh, they're very deep questions, and I've come from some of the kids. Uh, it's very impressive, but uh, let's get rolling tonight. Here is the first question that we have this evening, and this came from one of the kids. 
Will there be different degrees of reward in heaven? The question is, when we get to our eternal reward, will each of us be rewarded differently or will we all enjoy heaven at the same level? I do believe the Bible teaches that there will be different degrees of joy, different degrees of reward in heaven. You know, it's true that even in this life, we enjoy heaven, or we enjoy spiritual things at different levels, right? I mean, even in the assembly tonight, we enjoy things differently. Some are thoroughly enjoying themselves. Some are probably interested. And before I'm done, there will probably be some who have gone to the land of Nod, if you know what I mean. And so, even in this life, we enjoy things differently. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, Daniel says that they who turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever. Now, what does that mean? They that turn many to righteousness are going to shine as the stars. Obviously, this is written to encourage, to stimulate soul winning. What about those who win few to righteousness? Are they going to shine as brightly? What about those who win none to righteousness? Are they going to shine just as brightly? If the reward is going to be the same for everybody, then what is the point of this promise in the first place? And don't you think there's going to be a difference in heaven for the man who labored and brought hundreds of souls to Jesus Christ and a man who maybe obeyed the gospel right at the very end and died immediately thereafter? You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul said this, For what is our hope and our joy and our rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at the coming of Jesus? What is he saying? We have hope and joy in the fact that you are going to be saved. He's talking to the brethren in Thessalonica. He's saying on the day of judgment, if you go to heaven, that's going to bring us extra joy. What about a person who hasn't saved anyone? They're not going to have that same effect that Paul is talking about. Listen to this. Luke 15 verses 6 and 7, the Bible says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, this is what I want you to get out of that verse. He says that there can be more joy in heaven, which implies there could be less joy in heaven. I think we learned from that passage there can be different levels of enjoyment in heaven. And I think it speaks to the fact that there can be degrees of uh, pleasure, degrees of enjoyment. Now, what does that have to do with us individually? Matthew 6 and verse 20 says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Can we lay up different degrees of treasure in heaven? I think that's the implication of the passage. Matthew 16 and verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in, his, in the glory of His Father with His angels. Now listen to this part. And then He will recompense every man according to his deeds. I think that passage teaches us in such a clear way that it can hardly be argued Jesus promised to repay according to that which we have done. 
If this verse is not telling us that God is going to dispense based on the lives that we have lived, and of course punish accordingly as well, then I don't know what this passage means. So I believe the Bible does teach there will be degrees of reward and also punishment, though that's not in this question. All right, here is the next question. If Methuselah was 969 years old, this also came from one of the kids, and Noah was 950 years old, would Noah be the second oldest man in the Bible? And the answer to that is no. It's a good question. I made a list here of the, let's see, this is not cooperating with me. Can y'all bump it? There you go. The top 10 oldest men in the Bible, Methuselah was the oldest at 969. Jared is the second oldest at 962. And Noah is number 3 at 950. Adam, 930. Seth, 912. Kenan, 910. Enos, 905. Mahalalil, 895. Lamech, 777. And then Enoch, 365. And you'll notice after the flood, the ages start going down significantly. And I think that has to do with the differences on the earth after the flood. Let's see here. All right, here is question number three. At the Tower of Babel, did God confuse their languages by family? And where was the Tower of Babel? When it says, did God confuse their languages by family, I think it means Within a household, could a husband and wife and a mother and father and children not even speak the same language anymore? Let me read this and then we'll answer the question. This is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this what they now begin to do, now nothing which they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the of the earth. Now the question is, did God confuse their languages by family? And when I first read this account, I thought, it doesn't say. There, there's no way to know. And if this is all that you read, you would not know. But I dig, did a little deeper digging, and I found this in the previous chapter. Chapter 10 and verse 20 says, These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages in their lands and their nations. And then he gives the genealogy. Chapter 10 and verse 31 says, These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages in their lands, according to their nations. And so he lists the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and he gives a breakdown and he says these families were divided up 
by their languages. And so that means within Shem's family, they now had different languages. In Ham's family, they had different languages. Now somebody might say, well, Don, that doesn't make sense because Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 10 comes before that. So how could they be divided up by their languages in chapter 10 before the Tower of Babel and chapter 11? And the answer is really easy. It's not in chronological order. It's just like Genesis chapter 2 doesn't chronologically follow Genesis chapter 1, but rather it gives more detail. And you know, we do the same sort of thing today. You'll tell a story, and then you come back and you elaborate on it. You give more background, and the Bible does that oftentimes. And so chapter 10 gives us some more information about the event that we're not even told about until chapter 11. To what degree did, did this division take place? And to what degree was there confusion within families? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us that. Can you imagine if your son, you and your son suddenly couldn't speak to each other? You might say, well, yeah, when he turned a teenager, we had that happen at our house. But, um, but imagine if you and your son, you just all of a sudden, you couldn't speak the same language. Or imagine a husband and wife. They suddenly couldn't speak to each other. My guess would be that God would not separate a husband and wife that way, but it doesn't say. Uh, now the second part of the question says, where was the Tower of Babel? And the answer is, it was right smack in the heart of Babylon in what today is modern day Iraq. Good question, came from one of the kids. Number four, this question actually involves an audio clip. Now I'm going to read you the question and then I'm going to play the audio clip because the audio clip is what caused the question. The person in this audio clip is a preacher and he said this on the air in a podcast and someone wrote to me, thank you, y'all changed up because I forgot to. Um, the person said this to me they asked me first, before they sent me the audio clip, they said, is there ever a time when a Christian can be justified using foul language, you know, cussing, for the sake of reaching a worldly person or an ungodly person or maybe to diffuse a situation? And I wrote back and answered them, and then they sent me this clip. Let's play this clip. Last week, I said something that threw a couple of people off because they're not used to hearing people talk like this. In a, and I, I'm loath to use the word counseling because it wasn't exactly a counseling session. I'm also loath to use the word Bible study because it wasn't exactly a Bible study session either. It was more like a pastoral care kind of life coaching session. And I was talking with a very angry and belligerent and obstinate young adult. And he was trying to unnerve me and show me that he was more cultured in the world, he was more knowledgeable in the world, and that I was out of touch and didn't know what was going on. And he was being hyper-aggressive and he was cursing at me. So I mirrored his behavior and his language. 
I'm not going to tell you what I said. I'm not going to repeat what I said. But that is a tactic in that situation. It's kind of the last resort. But I had already tried all the other stuff. But once I mirrored him and mirrored his language, even the really bad cuss words, I I said it unironically and unapologetically. And I looked him in the eye and I stared him down for a minute. I made him turn his gaze. That got through to him. That disarmed him. And we were able to make progress where I wouldn't have been able to make progress where somebody else who wasn't willing to do that would have not gotten through. All right? Now, I didn't explain that in that detail last week. I just kind of gave the Cliff Notes version of it. And I had some people... Okay, we can stop there. This clip played, it is a brother in Christ, a preacher, graduate of the Memphis School of Preaching that did this podcast, and someone heard it, and they sent me this question. Is there ever a time when a Christian can be justified using foul language for the sake of reaching a worldly or ungodly person or diffusing a situation? No, that's absolutely ridiculous. When I listened to this, I thought, this guy is out of his mind. He says it's mirroring, and this guy just had his back up to the point that he, was, uh, he had to talk that way to him to um, get this guy to back down. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, the people were cursing him. Why didn't he curse back at them? Why didn't he mirror their behavior in order to get through to them? because it would have been sinful. This might be a recommended counseling tactic. I've never heard that, but it is certainly not biblical. You know, much counseling that takes place in the world today is not in line with the Bible. You've got to be very, very careful when it comes to counselors. Is it all right to cuss to get through, with, to, get through to somebody? You know, there's a Greek word for that, and it is balone. That is, it's ridiculous. So don't pay him any mind. Uh, I am embarrassed that there's a gospel preacher who has been out and said this. A lot of uh, podcasts put out a lot of weird things. You've got to be careful. All right, here's number five. Let's see here. Do we have mistakes in our Bibles due to scribes copying it and passing it down? Can we be sure that we really have the Word of God? Now, this is a longer answer because this is a very serious question. There is a course of study that is known as textual criticism. What textual criticism does is they study ancient manuscripts. And it has become very popular in recent times to suggest that the Bible is filled with mistakes and it's not really reliable and that in fact we absolutely cannot trust our Bibles. One such textual critic, an individual who says this, is a man named Bart Ehrman. In fact, he has gotten rich and famous doing this. He has a Ph.D. He went to Princeton Theological Seminary. His argument goes something like this. He says in the first century, he said they didn't have a copying machine. And so if Paul wrote a letter 
and they wanted a copy of it, they had to hand copy it. He said, inevitably, there would be mistakes. And then someone would make a copy of that copy. And so the mistakes of the first person would get passed on in the second copy, and then they would make mistakes. And so you would have more mistakes. And this would go on for copy after copy after copy. And he argues then, we don't have the originals, and we don't have the copies of the originals. We don't have copies of the copies. We don't even have copies of the copies of the copies. And so he says, what we have now, can we say that we really have the Word of God? We have absolutely no idea. And he will tell you that there are approximately 300,000 to 400,000 known errors in what we have today that we call the Bible. That is, if you look at all the different manuscripts, we have 400,000 conflicts. And it leaves us with the idea that the Bible is absolutely not trustworthy. He has gotten rich teaching this. Is he correct when he says that there have been mistakes that have been transmitted through the years? Yes. Is he correct when he says that there are 300,000 to 400,000 conflicts amongst these manuscripts? Yes. Is he correct when he, in fact, um, in uh, Ehrman has written three di different books now that have been wildly popular. One has, is called Misquoting Jesus. His latest one is called Forged. And he wrote one called Jesus Interrupted. If you look these up, I think all three of them went to the top of the bestsellers list. How can a book on textual criticism make the top of the bestsellers list? Because we live in a society that is hungry for uh, something saying you can't trust the Bible. And with each book, he's gotten progressively stronger in his attacks. So, should your faith be shaken? Should you say we can't trust the Bible? Let me share some more information with you. There are approximately 5,750 ancient Greek manuscripts that we have found just of the New Testament. If you find, include other languages such as Latin, Syriac, Coptic, etc., there are approximately 24,000 manuscripts. Now, when you compare all of these manuscripts, there are approximately 400,000 textual variants. You might think, wow, that's a lot of mistakes. That's a lot of variations. Our Bibles are not reliable. And if I wanted to shake your faith, I would stop right there. However, I'm not going to stop right there because I want you to know more information about this. I'll throw in one more thing before I tell you this. We have what is called the church fathers. That is, people who lived very early on. That is, people who were taught by the apostles and lived in the next 100 years. And they would write commentaries and letters and they would quote from the New Testament. We can recreate almost the entire New Testament just from quotations in the church fathers. And those go way, way back. Let me go back to the manuscripts. The 24,000 manuscripts that we have, of which we have 400,000 textual variants, the majority of them are spelling 
and nonsense errors. This is the vast largest group. This would obviously include misspelled words. It includes things such as the movable new. The movable new in Greek is something we don't have in English, but we have something very similar in English. It would be similar to the way we use the words a and an. We would say a car or an apple. Same sort of thing in Greek. And so the vast majority of these errors or conflicts relate to misspellings and the movable new. It amounts to nothing. The second largest group would be synonyms and alterations that don't affect the translation. This would include things such as rearranging word order without changing the meaning. For instance, he gathered the sheep, or the sheep he gathered. It means the same thing. Here is the third group. Textual variants that involve meaningful changes but are not viable. Now, what do I mean by that? In other words, it's definitely a mistake, but it's not viable. For instance, maybe there are 5,000 manuscripts that say God, and then we find one manuscript that says Christ. Well, that's significant. It's meaningful, but it's not really viable. It's not likely. We can see that this one is going to be a mistake because it is just overshadowed by the, the uh, sheer uh, massive quantity of evidence. Then the last and the smallest group would be meaningful and viable. These are changes that matter. Changes, these are things that change the meaning of a passage and we think that they are legitimate errors. This is the smallest category and as a matter of fact this category comprises less than 1% of all textual variants. What does that mean? It means that we have 24,000 manuscripts to compare for accuracy. We've got a lot of data to draw from. There are approximately 138,000 words in the New Testament, and over 99% of those words, scholars are absolutely confident that we have it right, and it is exactly the way God intended. What does that mean? Textual criticism has been able to recover the New Testament to the degree of 99% accuracy. Textual critics, Westcott, Westcott and Hort, asserted that the parts of the New Testament that are still subject to doubt, they said can hardly amount to more than a thousandth part of the New Testament, which would be less than a third of a page. And most importantly, it remains the case that no major Christian doctrine comes into doubt amongst the textual variants. What does that mean? Bart Ehrman agrees to that. He is one of the top scholars to say you can't trust your Bible, but he says, well, it's true that no major um, cardinal doctrine of Christianity is to be doubted. What's the point? The point is you can trust your New Testament. When people say there are no manuscript, that there are manuscript variations and scribal errors and omissions, that's not really based on fact because God in His wisdom has made it so that we can check it out. You can trust your Bible. Now, 
I know I'm going long on this, but I want you to get this point because this sort of thing shakes people's faith. Daniel B. Wallace is one of the most renowned Bible scholars in the world. He debated Ehrman, Bart Ehrman. In fact, three or four times they have debated. I watched one of them on YouTube recently, and uh, after I received this question, I watched this debate. You ought to watch Wallace versus Ehrman. It's a three-hour debate, but it is very interesting. Dr. Wallace tells about this experiment that he does. He calls it the Snoopy Seminar. He goes into universities and he goes into churches. He says he has done the Snoopy Seminar more than 70 times so far. I want to read to you the description of the Snoopy Seminar. It's a little bit lengthy, but just bear with me. I'm going to watch my time here. He says, on Friday night, I come in and I teach some of the basics of New Testament textual criticism. Then I ask for 22 people to volunteer to be, to be scribes. That's the ones who supposedly messed it up when they copied it. The scribes go into a separate room and they copy out a short text of the gospel according to Snoopy, something he made up, in English, each with specific instructions designed to increase errors in the copying process so that they will corrupt the text. The text goes through six generations of copies, so they copy this six times. Meanwhile, the rest of the people are the textual critics, the ones who supposedly live thousands of years later. They are trying to reconstruct the genealogy of the transmission of the text, namely which scribe copied from which scribe, and then they think through what kind of skills and biases scribes would have had to bring to their task. On Saturday morning, we all get together again, and the textual critics get busy working on the remaining manuscripts that the scribes produced. Unfortunately, most of the early manuscripts strangely disappeared overnight, including the first five generations. So he takes the original and the first five copies and he just gets rid of them. All they're left with is copy number six. He says the textual critics then have to do their best with the manuscripts that they have to work with. They record all of the variations, and he said there are always more variations than there were words in the original text. But unlike New Testament textual criticism, the variants are usually meaningful. He sets it up so there are going to be some significant changes. The vast bulk of the New Testament variations are not significant. The textual critics work in small groups for about three hours. They debate, they wrestle with uh, the possible uh, corruptions and which manuscripts are more corrupt than others. All of them are corrupt to some degree. They try to determine the wording of the original, quote, gospel according to Snoopy. Then all the groups get together. I function as a secretary and I write down the major variants on a whiteboard and I list what the whole group thinks would be the original wording of the original text. When I get done posting all the variants, the whiteboard is a mess. No one is confident that they have reconstructed the text of Snoopy exactly. Then something happens. The original text of Snoopy is discovered and they compare how they did. How close did they get? In the 70 times that they have done this, with all of this textual criticism, they come 
very, very close to reproducing the original. I would love to be a part of this seminar. It sounds so interesting. Now, you might be in the land of Nod right now. I don't know. But the point is, he is illustrating the fact that you can trust your Bible. These people who are saying that we're not, it's ridiculous. Now, I'm going to skip some of this because I know I'm getting kind of long here. But here's one more thing I want you to ponder. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen and understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What does that mean? The things that are made, God has created us in a way that we understand that He exists. I read a study recently that said both atheist and theist overwhelmingly admit that humans are predisposed to believe in an intelligent creator of some sort. What do they mean? Religion is universal to mankind. We have been created in a way that almost everybody believes in God. Religion is universal. Renowned atheist Sam Harris said, several experiments suggest that children are predisposed to assume design and intention behind natural events, leaving many psychologists and anthropologists to believe that children, left entirely to their own devices, invent some concept of God. What does that mean? God created us so that we naturally believe in Him. God has created us with the evidence so that we are without excuse. He put it in us. The facts are there. Are we to conclude from that that this God who made us this way and gave us this amazing world didn't have the ability to pass on His Word accurately? Is that not ridiculous? Luke 21, 33 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall in no means pass away. All right, I spent too long on that question, and I skipped some of it. But here is uh, question number six. What is gossip? What's the difference in talking about a matter and gossiping about a matter? At what point does something become gossip? Let me read you a passage that includes the word gossip. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 11 is talking about widows. Their husband died, they're a widow. And should the church support them? This is what he says, But refuse the younger widows. That is, don't support the younger widows. He says, For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides that... They learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not to say. He said, don't support the younger widows. They need to marry, they need to have a house, they need to be busy. If you support these young widows and they're not working, he said, they're going to lose their faith, they're going to be busybodies, they're going to be gossips. I looked up this word gossip in Greek, the word means to babble, a tattler. Notice this, it says they are saying things which they ought not to say. Gossip is when you're saying things you ought not to say. 
Sometimes I hear people say, I'm going to tell you something, this is not gossip, this is true. It doesn't matter if it's true, it can still be gossip. I can tell you something that's true, which might be a thing that I ought not to say. So how do you determine if it's gossip? It really comes down to your motive. God knows your heart. If two elders are sitting down or an eldership is sitting down and talking about a person's marriage problem because they want to help them, that's not gossip. You see, the motive is right. If sister so-and-so calls you and says, did you hear about ya, 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 and so-and-so's marriage problem? That's going to be gossip. You see, it has to do with saying things that you ought not to say. Your motive and your heart is going to determine whether it's gossip. Good question. Here, I wanted to cover 10. It's 550. All right. Um, let, me do, let me do one more. Is it okay to do one more? Okay. Um, this is also from one of the kids. If Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, where's the Holy Spirit? And where's the Father? I thought, that's a great question. You can see the mind turning of a young person. If Jesus is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, where is the Holy Spirit? When we are told that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, we are not to understand from that that the Father and the Son literally have to sit. They're tired of standing. They've got to sit down on a throne somewhere. Acts 17.24 says that He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. What does that mean? It means that God is not a flesh and blood entity that has to sit down. 1 Corinthians 15.51, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Isaiah 59 and verse 1 says, Behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. We're not to conclude from that that the Lord has physical hands and He has physical ears. This is a figure of speech called anthropomorphism. What does that mean? It is when you take human characteristics and you attribute them to deity. The Lord doesn't have a literal ear like I do but he's using this to tell us something. And so when we read about Christ sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, that is speaking about a place of authority. It's Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. By whom? The Father. It's speaking to his authority. It's not saying Jesus has to sit down. It doesn't mean he has a literal throne, but it is speaking to the authority that he has. All right, I, I'm sorry, I've got to do one more because this one's relevant. Um, all right, I'm going to skip to number nine. I hate to, but this number nine is very relevant. You'll see why. In light of the fact that in June, Cracker Barrel came out in support of homosexuality, should Christians stop eating there? I would liken this to the question that came up in the first century, and that is eating meat offered to idols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, we know that an idol is nothing. But he gives some circumstances in which you shouldn't eat meat offered to idols. 1 Corinthians 10, he discusses it again. Romans chapter 14, he discusses it again. The conclusion is, it's not wrong to eat meat offered to an idol. We know an idol is nothing. But then he gives a few caveats. He says, if it's sold in the marketplace... 
that is, it's not in the idol's temple, it's sold in the marketplace, then it's okay to eat it. Why? You're not giving the impression that you're worshiping a false deity. If I'm up there in the idol, in the idol's temple, sitting at the table eating it, that's going to give people the wrong impression. If it's sold in the marketplace, it's okay. Number two, caveat, you're not contributing toward a brother violating his own conscience. That is, me doing it is not going to make a brother sin. That is 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. And third caveat, I'm not causing the world to think that I support this. And so it's okay to do this, but keep these caveats in mind. So let's go back and apply these principles to this question. If you eat at Cracker Barrel, I don't think you're going to cause anyone to believe that you support homosexuality. I'm not going to see Larry Harp at Cracker Barrel and say, I knew it. I knew he was an LGBT supporter. No one's going to reach that conclusion. As a matter of fact, I looked up some companies, uh, a list of those that support uh, homosexuality. Here's some of the, just some big significant ones in the A group. Adobe, Airbnb, Amazon, American Airlines, American Express, American Honda Motors, Apple, AT&T, Advanced Auto Parts. That was just some of the big ones I noticed just in the A category. If you don't want to support any company that supports uh, gay marriage, don't use Google. Don't use any products by Dow Chemicals, which incidentally has a hundred sub, uh, subsidiaries that belong to them. Don't use Etsy, Comcast, CVS, General Mills, Betty Crocker, Pillsbury, Cheerios, Trix, Lucky Charms, Count uh, Chocula. Oh man, you can't do Count Chocula. Um, Cocoa Puffs, that one doesn't surprise me. Uh, Nature Valley, Hagen dazs and over 100 more in that list. H&R Block, the Hartford, who is uh, insuring this building, Hilton, IBM, uh, Hampton, Intel, Levi's, Macy's, Mattel, Microsoft, Pepsi, Starbucks, Target, T-Mobile, Twitter, Uber, United Airlines, Verizon, Walt Disney, Wells Fargo, Zoom. There were over 200 on this particular list and if you add up all the sub-companies they own, there were thousands of them. If you're not going to do business with any company that supports gay marriage, you can forget owning a computer, you can forget owning a cell phone, you can forget just about any technology. In fact, you can forget about getting a car because Ford, General Motors, Fiat, Chrysler, Toyota, Nissan, Hyundai, Tesla, Volkswagen, Subaru, all got a perfect score on what they call the Corporate Equality Index. That is, those that support these type things, all of those car companies got 100% rating. And I could give you others, but here's the point. If going to Cracker Barrel now offends your conscience, Romans 14, don't do it. If in some way it appears, if they have gay day, at Cracker Barrel, I wouldn't go there on that day because that would be like going to the temple to get the meat. But it's going to be very, very difficult to live in the world we're in and boycott all of these companies. All right, I'll stop there. I've got a few that I didn't get to, but we'll do it again in a month.
Thank you for the questions. As always, we want to extend the Lord's invitation. Maybe you're here tonight and you've not become a Christian. You need to know to become a child of God, you need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Now maybe you say, I haven't heard that. I want to see book, chapter, and verse. Talk to us. We will set up a study. Josh will. One of the elders will. We've got several men who would be delighted to do that. Maybe you're here as a child of God and you need the prayers of your brethren on your behalf. We would be honored to do that as well. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.